Okay, well, we're sticking around in the New England area this week. We have Dr. Moby Parsons, who is an outstanding orthopedic surgeon in private practice up uh, in the seacoast area of New Hampshire. Uh, Moby is one of those rare birds, orthopedic surgeons, who uh, operates and does uh, total shoulder replacements and hip and knee replacements. He's a member of ASCS and AUKUS. It's a really small crowd. He's an outstanding orthopedic surgeon, has great ideas. He's wonderful on social media. He's an entrepreneur, has great ideas about uh, bundles and commercial bundles as to how we can improve on things. It was a wonderful conversation. I know you're going to love it. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the pro. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast where everyone knows we bring you the best of the best in orthopedics and we don't have to go very far this week. Uh, we have a, a close friend and colleague, Dr. Moby Parsons, who's an orthopedic surgeon that specializes in joint replacement. And he, he got a little messed up in his training somewhere somehow, but he's doing joint replacements in the upper and lower extremities. We got to talk about that. But he's in private practice in Durham, New Hampshire at the King Parsons Orthopedic Center. Moby, it is a pleasure to have you on, my friend. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here and uh, looking forward to the discussion. Fantastic. You know, I, you're, you're one of my favorite people to sort of watch on LinkedIn to see sort of what you're thinking about. You're always uh, sort of really throwing uh, some great concepts up there. I love your the way in which you use social media, and we'll talk about that as we get towards the end. But we always start at the beginning. So... Where, when, and why, you know, orthopedics, where did you grow up? Were your parents doctors? Tell us about it. I grew up in, in Maryland, about 25 minutes north of Baltimore in, in sort of horse farm country. It's now all been kind of developed, but back then it was uh, horse and farm country. I grew up on an apple farm, kind of working on the weekends, picking apples. My mother was a nurse at an orthopedic hospital. And so early on, she would sort of brainwash orthopedics into me. And so I, I sort of grew up always figuring that I would go into medicine. Then when I was uh, a teenager, you know, my stepfather entered, who was chief of surgery at the hospital where she worked. He was an orthopedic surgeon um, who really focused on lower extremity joint replacement. He was one of the early guys in America that had a license to use methyl methacrylate. He had gone over and studied with Charnley. And so I used to get to see him do hip and knee replacements occasionally when I would get to go into the operating room. So I, I had very early exposure um, to orthopedics uh, and, and always just kind of had medicine on the brain growing up that that's what I was going to do. Um, and, and I think because she worked at an orthopedic hospital and my stepfather was in the picture, you know, medicine to me always meant orthopedic surgery. There really was no other part of medicine that I ever even thought about. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you were you were born into it. Didn't have much of a choice. Pretty much. Uh, you know, the, yeah, I, I like yeah. to think that the brainwash kernel was just always there. You know, it was, <laughs> and it was nice because I never had to. I never had to decide what I really wanted to do with my life. It was always just sort of right in front of me. Destined for you. Yeah, for me, it was about tenth grade too. I went to uh, a public high school where a number of uh, kids that were my close friends' fathers were orthopedic surgeons. So. Where were you, like Hunt Valley or like north of Hunt Valley or where where did you go? Yeah, I literally was like five miles west of Hunt Valley. Yeah. 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 No, no. Well, horse country for sure. 
And then what was it like? Kern, where did mom work at Kernan or like, cause you said pediatrics, like George Paley, what, what hospital were they? Yeah. So it was called children's hospital of Baltimore. It's actually no longer around. And then after that kind of closed up, she eventually moved into hospital administration, became the VP of that hospital. And then when that hospital closed off, she went over and worked at Johns Hopkins, kind of got into um, international medicine through Hopkins, and then kind of ended her career as a healthcare care consultant. So yeah, that, that, that's awesome. So again, it was uh, very early on. And then a stepfather that's bringing you in to watch, you know, cases that had to have been super cool. So so Phillips Andover, I mean, like, I, you know, we always do our research here, you know, okay, Mobs, Moby, and, and literally that's like 10 minutes down the road. It's arguably, you know, Bill Belichick, that's one of the, one of the more famous, gra- although I think he was more of a, like a, a, a graduate student, but, uh, you know, it's known as the, one of the, the best high schools in the world, you know, if you will. I mean, their, their endowment and their facilities are absolutely yeah. tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's like a college campus mm-hmm. and I, you know, I had two older sisters, they were going away to college. You know, I didn't want to be the only child left at home. Um, I had been with the same group of people in in grade school all the way through and and just was sort of ready for a change. And because I was the third kid and my mom worked a job, my dad worked, I sort of, you know, got myself off to school early and was always fairly independent and just kind of, you know, knew at that point in my life that I was sort of ready to fly the coop. I spent my summers going to summer camp up here in New Hampshire. And so I was I was used to being away from home. And was just kind of looking for a, a different track, and you know, was was my brother-in-law, who was then my sister's boyfriend, had gone there, and and they kind of again, you know, brainwashed me into thinking if you're going to go anywhere, that's where you got to go. Um, it was great experience for me. I think being away from home early was was it just gave me a lot of independence, and the faculty there was unbelievable. The facilities were unbelievable, um, and I think of probably a lot of the schooling that I had in terms of you know, formative years. Um, I look back on those years as, as, as really just instrumental and, and kind of yeah. just getting me squared away and, you know, putting me on a good path. And kids from all over the world. I mean, just yeah. remarkable, you know, the, the, uh, the kids that come from all over the world to, to go. So, so you, you knew, we already know the story. You're going to medical school. You're going to be an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, so it's Georgetown, then Columbia. And, and at Columbia, obviously there's no uh, short, uh, a list of great shoulder uh, specialists on the planet. And Louis Biliani, uh, I'm sure, was there at the time. So you, did yep. you develop a desire for upper extremity and shoulder early on in your career? Yeah, I, I got to back up and tell you a funny story about Columbia. So when I'm applying to medical school at Georgetown, you know, which is a Jesuit college, I'm going to mail my Columbia application. And I was walking up to the mailbox at the Healy Gates of Georgetown and Father Hens, who's one of the Jesuit priests, happened to just be walking by right at the time I was getting ready to drop this thing in the mailbox. So I asked him to bless the envelope. I was just going to say, did you bless the envelope? <laughs> and the rest is history. Yeah. That's it. That was it. Yeah. That was the more yeah. that you needed to do. I love it. Yeah. Next thing you know, is Lou Schoen, you just needs to blow the shofar <laughs> over you to bless you for your next surgery as well. You'll be all set. Yeah, uh, so but think- that's so that. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I mean, at Columbia, um, you know, the, the shoulder service there was certainly like a powerhouse service. And I think, you know, that's when you're really trying to sort of build your connections, build your resume. And I think I sort of realized early that um, if you hook up with those guys and you get to know those guys and do some research with those guys, they 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 can really sort of, you know, catapult you forward. So I um, started hanging out on the shoulder service as early as I could there. Um, that's when Bill, Bill Levine and Pat Connor were the fellows when I was a fourth year medical student. So I had a lot of fun 
you know, hanging out with those guys when they were fellows. Um, and, and yeah, and, and so I, I got interested in shoulders sort of right then and there around my fourth year of medical school. Um, and, and then just kind of carried it forward. It was one of those things where I knew I wanted to go into orthopedics and then I just sort of, you know, my resume just started, started tracking me towards the shoulders. So when I got to out to, um, Pitt after Columbia and I had a research year cause I was doing the six year track, you know, I, I just kind of immediately knew, like, I want to get into the lab and, and do shoulder stuff. So that's where I got plugged in with, um, JP Warner and Savio Wu kind of working on a bunch of shoulder projects out there. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's always amazing to me, you know, the, the the lineage, right, and the connections of all these great orthopedic surgeons now that that sort of are the shoulders in which we stand upon, and uh, especially our generation. You know, we're four or five years apart, so it doesn't take long. You know, so J.P. Warner obviously is a mass general, but he was at the beginnings of his career there, a young uh, uh, surgeon, you know, ready to to sort of change the world in shoulder. What an amazing time to work uh, with with J.P. And then I'm sure Chris Harner was there. Just a great. And Fred, yep. you know, Freddie Fu was there too. You're getting your sports training and ACLs as well, really getting outstanding training. But you were still sort of drawn, which is interesting because we're going to keep working towards. Because every time I, I pop on LinkedIn, I usually see you talking about a hip or knee replacement. We yeah. haven't gotten there yet, right? Yeah. But, uh, but so you're still going to stick around with the shoulder, the elbow. You go out to the University of Washington you're for your fellowship, and that's going to hone your skills even further at that point. Uh, and so that is like 2002, 2003, the reverse total shoulder is just starting to gain some favor at this point. We haven't really figured it out yet, you know, with the Europeans doing it one way and people want to do it here differently. And Mark Frankel wants to do it his way. And But I mean, it must have been a really fascinating time in that growth of shoulder uh, to really sort of explode at that time, for sure. Yeah. So after after my fellowship in Washington with, with um, Rick Matson, you know, which was mind-blowing experience i went down to sydney australia and spent um six months down there with david sonnebent and jeff hughes and they had the reverse already so it was kind of neat so i actually got to see it down there before it got fda approved in the states and then i finished my fellowship in sydney in january 2004 and it got fda approved in july and so because i had already seen it i actually went to the very first class that you could go to out in chicago for the for the uh delta to get certified to use it and uh and then came back and had already lined up a few people. And so I actually put the first reverse shoulder in in the state of New Hampshire uh, back in July of 2004. So, yeah, I mean, it's been yeah. I mean, th following that whole sort of lineage and development has been fascinating over the years. And obviously a lot's changed and we've learned a lot on how to make that a better operation. So, yeah, for sure. All right. So, so you figure all that out, you then decide you're going to go back to New Hampshire and, you know, before what was there, was it your wife? Was there a reason drawn back into New Hampshire? Was it just natural for you or how'd you pick the seacoast? Yeah. So we, you know, my, my, my wife and I met at Georgetown, um, you know, and we're together all through Columbia and Pitt. Um, we got married probably when I was like a second year at, at Pitt. And so, you know, we sort of figured she came from Connecticut that we would be somewhere between DC and Boston. My sisters were living at the in Boston at the time. And so that was kind of the corridor that was close to family. And a buddy of mine from residency had gone to New Hampshire. We had never really thought about New Hampshire much just because I, you know, we had lived in a lot of big cities and we were always thinking city. Um, but he called up and said, you know, we're looking for a guy in our practice. Why don't you come take a look? I had spent a lot of summers in New Hampshire at summer camp. And so we just went and looked at it. And sort of realize like, this is a great place to live, you know, great place to raise kids. There's no state taxes, no sales tax. You're close to Boston. You got the ocean, you got the mountains. 
and just decided to sort of take a crack at it and um, love it here. It's been great. Yeah. So that's how yeah. we ended up here. Really, really just by virtue of a buddy who said, come take a look at us. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. That's, that's how it was sort of went back in those days, right? There's not as much social media connections and all the things that we do now to, to yeah. be connected. And it was very similar for me staying in Massachusetts as well, uh, as well. But, you know, and, and that, that area is just so beautiful. The ocean, as you said, the mountains and everything else. So a lot, a lot of great stuff going on. All right. So I don't right, tell so anybody about it. <laughs> I know you guys are happy. It's all good. Nobody's coming. You guys are good, but uh, I love it. So, so, all right. So I'm confused. You got, you know, all the, the people that know you uh, and respect you know that you do arthroplasty in both, you know, as Paul Fabry would say, the superior and then the inferior extremity and then, uh, or the upper and lower, depending on how you're looking at it. But, you know, so literally, so we know your lineage and training in shoulder arthroplasty and we understand why you're doing that, but at what point and when did you decide that, you know, lower extremity arthroplasty was also going to be something that was, you're going to be passionate about and develop a career with? Yeah. So two years in, so, so when I, when I started practice, you know, they were sort of looking for a sports guy to help with team coverage at UNH and some of the high schools. And, uh, and so I, I sort of came in and covered that base. You know, I, I had had a lot of sports training with Freddie and Chris, um, but not fellowship level sort of doing, you know, good ACL reconstructions. And so I sort of was like the backup guy. Uh, there were several people in the practice that were doing shoulder sports stuff. The trauma guy was doing it. Everybody wanted a piece of shoulder arthroscopy because it paid well at the time. And so my niche sort of became the more reconstructive stuff. Um, and two years in, the senior partner of the practice, who was a joint guy, you know, announced his retirement and basically said, you know, what do you guys want to do? Do you guys want to put the word out for another fellowship trained joint guy? And I just sort of realized, you know, the same patient population that I'm doing shoulder replacements in, you know, is full of arthritis in other areas. And where everybody's competing for these sort of sport shoulder cases, it might make sense for me to sort of get back up to speed on hip and knee replacements and just develop an all arthroplasty practice. And I can still do whatever shoulder comes my way. Uh, and so I spent basically six months scrubbing in with my senior partner, doing sort of a mini fellowship, going out, doing a lot of courses at the academy, you know, all that kind of stuff, doing some surgeon visitation stuff and just, you know, getting my hands wet back again and hip and knee replacement. And then, you know, like a lot of it, you know, that we all know, you learn as you go, you develop new skills and new comfort levels as you go. And then that sort of parlayed into doing, you know, some revision work. And, and then before you know it, you know, that's where your practice starts to go. And so, um, you know, now it's mainly hip, knee, shoulder replacement. I still do some cuff repairs. I don't do much instability work. If somebody needs a ladder J uh, and nobody else is comfortable sort of opening up the shoulder, I'll do some open ladder J procedures on occasion. Um, and I'll do some occasional fracture work, but I work at a hospital where there's two trauma surgeons that pick a lot of that stuff up. So, you know, my practice now is sort of 90% just arthroplasty of the hip, knee, and shoulder, and an occasional elbow, although we just don't see a lot of that anymore. You know, it's interesting because that's just not how it is these days, right? Most of the kids coming out of fellowship, they're super specialty at this point. And you know, as far as they're concerned, they want to jump right in doing exactly what it is that they do and hopefully have a busy practice from day one. But for you, that you you saw that there was a niche, that there was a, a need within your practice, and then you you developed a you know a training around that. I think that's really remarkable. Um, so I got to ask. I mean, 
are you you're not a member of ASCS and AUKUS? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like like how many of them are there? How many guys are I know. there? I know. You probably I know. are the only one. I would think. Yeah, and I gotta I gotta like, you know, peer review articles from both. It's like torture, you know. I mean it's <laughs> it's like a privilege, but you're like, oh not another one. Yeah. So so so, so for the listeners again, for because my mother's always listening. So you know, the American Shoulder and Elbow Society is a very exclusive club. It's not quite as exclusive as it used to be when you first got in. But, uh, you know, it's it's really a group of really highly trained shoulder and elbow specialists. And then you got AUKUS, which is the hip and knee replacement society, basically. So, yeah. And they're you know, like, the more the merrier. Anybody can join. <laughs> exactly. Any, yeah. Anybody can join. And then, But the point is, it's like, we got to do the homework on this, Grace. We got to check it out. But I think you're probably... There can't be more than two of you, or maybe three of you. You may be the only one that's a member of both societies. Uh, there's, there's a couple, like yeah, Joe Zuckerman. You know, okay, the guy that's like the goat. Uh, the goat. I guess he got yeah, written, written in, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's awesome. Too. We're gonna we're gonna. ASCS, Go it's funny. A ASCS, I liken it to applying for disability. You always get rejected the first time. <laughs> you keep coming back, and sooner or later, you know, maybe they feel sorry for you. They let you in. Yeah, no, we, you know, we just had Howard Routman on, who you, you must know Howard very well. He started reverse about the same time as you did, yeah. and they had to change the rules to let a DO in. I mean, that didn't even exist as far as that's concerned, too. We got I don't want to give up all of his episode, but I think that's a great story. I think it really is, and I think that, uh, you know, and the fact that you're doing Open Ladder J, I find that absolutely hysterical, but, uh, yeah. you know, that's just not something that that my joint replacement surgeon, you know, Dave Prabilla, is not going to be doing at Open Ladder J. I mean, between <laughs> you and I, he was, he was doing and a knee never scope. See me I, doing I shouldn't even do a scope. You know, so okay, there you go, right? So there you go. But <laughs> I don't, I don't even want to tell that story. Dave will get mad at me. But anyhow, so let's talk some more about some of the cool stuff that's going on. First and foremost, I love your social media because the way what you you know you're you have such wisdom at this point. You've been in practice for decades. You know, you span across the shoulder as well as into the lower extremity, and you're always you're always putting out ideas and concepts to really challenge people. You know, what would you do on this? Develop consensus, right? What can we do to make all of the things that we do better? So, does that just something that naturally came to you, or you know, because you're an old guy like me? I mean, when did the social media thing really come in for you? Probably about three or four years ago. I never understood what LinkedIn was. I thought it was just a Rolodex. I literally thought it was like just an address book for professionals. I had no idea that it was like a Facebook feed that you could scroll through. I, I didn't understand that. And then, you know, we were having dinner with a guy talking about some sort of high level healthcare policy stuff, price transparency, who's just a local entrepreneur who's, you know, started a company in that realm. And, and he said, are you guys on LinkedIn? And I said, I think I have an account. I, I, I don't really understand it. And he goes, it's just like Facebook. It's like Facebook feed. You got to check it out. You guys got to get on LinkedIn. You got to get on there. And, um, and so, you know, that, that sort of piqued my interest and, and, and just kind of crystallized like, oh, that's all it is. It's just like Facebook for business. And, um, and he really was the one, his name is Mark Galvin and he's a local sort of serial entrepreneur, unbelievably smart guy. And, and he was the one that said, you, you guys got to get on LinkedIn and start sort of creating, you know, some presence. And so that that was really kind of the nidus for me to get on there. And then it's just been like a completely, you know, eye opening community, as you're aware. I mean, and so many of us that are on there regularly always are saying, like, it's amazing how much you learn 
from others. And just, you know, if you keep an open mind and read through people's stuff and follow these cases and discussions, I mean, I feel like it's like a mini fellowship. I was, you know, talking to, to Ira Kirschenbaum at the OSET last year saying, we literally should come up with like a LinkedIn fellowship where like, you know, once a week you pick somebody and they give sort of a 30 minute talk on a topic. And over the course of a year, you cover 52 topics and it's like a fellowship and you can get some CME credits. And of course he's busy enough with all his other pursuits, but I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal community of people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, as I've, as I've, you know, kind of gotten more into it, um, you know, I use it a lot to sort of post cases that I might have questions about, or if I'm uncertain about, you know, would you do this or would you do that? Or how would you address this? It's a great community to get a ton of feedback from all over the world, uh, you know, but also just to sort of try to make people think some concepts all the way through. I think there's a lot of stuff out there that, you know, gets heavily pushed by marketing or whatever. And, and there's this sort of tendency because we live in a competitive environment to jump on certain bandwagons without kind of thinking it all the way through to the other side or asking a lot of questions about, you know, what does it all mean? Um, and so I, I, I feel like half the posts I put on there have more, more questions, you know, like sort of open-ended questions to try to generate some discussions or, you know, as Jimmy Chow once said, you know, poke the bear, sort of like stir up controversy, but hopefully in sort of a kind and friendly way that that uh, leads to good open discussions and, and not gunfire. Yeah. And you, and you can build consensus and and it's like a chat room for, for some of the smartest people in the world to do exactly what you do. Right. I mean, in, in the old, in 2002 or 2004, if you were going to go and do a reverse total shoulder replacement, you know, you had to go do a course, you figured it out, you looked at the x-rays and then you went and you did it. But, you know, <laughs> and nowadays you could pop up and just say, Hey, you know, what, What's going on out there? Next thing you know, Anand Murthy or Sharif Bashay or Paul Favorito or Joe Abood or Bill Levine are commenting on your, you know, on what you're doing. And then you can say, okay, I get this. This is great. And this sounds like a great way to go, or maybe not. Uh, but it draws questions. We can bring in industry as well, all the ideas that industry can partner and be able to make commentary as well. So I, I love it. I enjoy it. I'm always motivated by, you know, some of the greats that spend time on the internet as well, LinkedIn to sort of provide yeah. us ideas and education. So everybody uses it differently. And I really do appreciate the way that you do. So, so Moby, tell us what, you know, what's it, what gets you up in the morning right now? What, what's really exciting, you know, in the world of arthroplasty that, that you think is really next level, that's going to really change how we do things. Well, I was going to say, you know, Kendall Tool or Emma Lovewell, but if you want to talk more about orthopedics. <laughs> <you know. laughs> well, that gets us going in the morning. Peloton right? reference. <laughs> For those of you, yeah, no, know. dude, I, I don't know if you saw, but the stock's down like thirty percent today. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much longer we're going to have Peloton around. But uh, I've been and I've been trying to get Peloton to sponsor the Ortho Show for quite some time. So you can keep rolling on that all day long. Yeah, and you, you know, I'm in a practice with just two of us now. You know, we like to think of ourselves as as sort of a boutique joint practice. You know, as we all know, the um, the healthcare environment has become sort of a a challenge in terms of running the business, particularly in joints where, you know, a large fraction of it is, is Medicare. And so um, as a small practice, there's, there's pros and cons. I mean, you can be nimble as far as um, how you run it. You can run it fairly lean, but by the same token, you don't have a large cushion. It's very hard to have ancillary services and, you know, DME and MRI and PT and all these other services that can bring in ancillary revenue. So, uh, you know, I think what, what gets me out of bed in the morning is is the fact that I feel like there's a lot of change going on in healthcare right now. 
kind of along these lines of there's more companies that are self-insured, there's direct employer contracting, there's a lot of people getting into this space of price transparency. And we haven't seen a ton of this in New England, but it's becoming very popular in other parts of the country uh, where, where people are looking for sort of lower cost, better options, potentially cash pay options. And, and so we've worked really hard over the last couple of years to try to you know, learn about this space, you know, how we can um, be on the front side of it. Uh, and as it sort of spreads around the country and comes into the New England marketplace, you know, we want to sort of, you know, get ahead of it. Uh, and by being small and by being nimble and by having a surgery center that's completely physician owned, it gives us, you know, the ability to, to sort of control more than if you're working with larger corporations you know, that have their own vested interests in it. And so, you know, that, that's that been kind of a major focus for us. We've done a lot of networking, you know, talking to people, learning from people about this, looking at what's going on in other parts of the country. Um, and a lot of it is just sort of waiting for the tide to trickle into the New England area. New England's always been a little bit slow to change. It's not an area with a ton of manufacturing like the, like the Midwest, where these things tend to be a little bit more popular. But it is coming uh, this way, and there are more and more companies that are self-insuring. There's more people that are going into health insurance captives rather than, you know, traditional, um, you know, health insurance companies. And so it, it's kind of an exciting time. It's one that's evolving constantly. And, um, you know, I think what, what excites us is, is trying to be a part of that evolution and being on the side of that evolution that we can potentially, you know, be part of the positive change, you know, and time will tell. And so it's it's been kind of an exciting ride over the last couple of years to get into this. We've learned a ton about how health insurance works and how healthcare works and, you know, all of the vagaries of that and all of the sort of perverse incentives that can be based and in, baked into it. And, you know, I, I have learned a lot about, you know, I came into it like all health insurance is bad and anybody that works for a health insurance company is evil. And, you know that that that's not really the case. It's a complicated world, uh, and there's more to learn than you can possibly know. It's sort of like, you know, people that work in the, even in the insurance industry don't know all the complexities of what they're doing. So it's a little bit like the Big Short. The people that created these credit default swaps on mortgage-backed securities didn't even know what it was that they created. Uh, so there's a lot of that in the health insurance industry, um, and and that's really kind of what excites us. I mean, obviously the day-to-day -day, uh, doing what we do. And arthroplasty is a really nice field because some patients get better really quickly and with rapid recovery protocols, it's awesome to see, you know, what people can achieve with their joint replacements. But but I think a lot of the sort of evolution of where healthcare is going, you know, what's going on with private equity and following that whole, obviously, you know that better than anybody. Um, that's kind of the exciting part, learning about the business side of it and, um, yeah, that's kind of what gets me out of bed in the morning now. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I think that as physicians, we we really have lost a lot of control about healthcare. And right, we have these commercial insurance companies, as you said, they 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 funnel off a lot of the uh, of the the money or the revenue associated with healthcare going to the administrative side of things. Uh, and then the question becomes, you know, can we do it better? Like value, orthopedic value based care is what we talk about. And you talk about, you know, a self-insured. So the concept for the listeners would be that 
a, a, a large company, for example, like Raytheon that's around here in this area, might then partner with a center like yourself to do hip and knee replacements for a certain amount of money. Uh, and then uh, within that time of 90 days or greater, you're covering the cost of all that's there. And you can pretend, potentially or perhaps do it for less money than the commercial insurance company would be able to do it for, but generate more revenue for yourself and for your center uh, and sort of sort of gaining in that uh, potential for revenue sharing for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's it's really you know win win for a lot of people. It's it's a win for the employer because it's a lot less money. Uh, it can be a win for the practice because, like you said, you can you can control the costs and sort of pay the people that are doing the work by removing a large portion of the administrative burden of the claim. You can you can basically create a single claim for the entire ninety day episode of care, so you don't need separate claims for anesthesia and and PT and VNA and the vendors and all that kind of stuff. It's it's a single claim uh, for everything, and and the insurance companies actually, as they've gotten to know it, they love it, you know. And so, like I said, they're they're not always the enemy. They just live in a world that's sort of got a lot of baked in archaic structure to it, with all these claims that come in that have to be adjudicated, and it's very inefficient. Um, and so I think that there's there's a lot of efficiencies to it. And I think that there's ways that you can even partner, not just with the employers, but but actually with the health insurance providers, um, in addition to see if there's some, you know, steerage that they can do to say, hey, if you want to, you know, save on your copay and deductible, we can waive that if you go see these people because they'll save X amount of dollars on the, you know, on this episode of care. Uh, it's taken quite a bit of work on our part, figuring out the logistics of, of sort of chasing and capturing the money. In every case, you have to look at their particular plan and what their copay might be and how much of their deductible they've spent. And we have a physician assistant, Kathy Levitt, who's just phenomenal and spends quite a bit of time on the phone just figuring all this stuff out. And um, it's, a, it, it's a lot of work, but it can be you know, tremendously rewarding. It's sort of like the work smarter, not harder. You know, I hear these stories of of guys doing, you know, 12 joints a day and 1,200 joints a year. And, um, you know, I think that's amazing that people can do that. I don't personally want to do that. I've already had both of my hips replaced and one of my shoulders has a hemiarthroplasty. And I can tell you, I don't want to be putting 12 joints in a day. I think it would just kill my body. Um, and so, you know, if there's a way that we can sort of work harder, not smarter, and everybody wins. To me, that's exciting, you know, and it, uh, we're certainly not there. We, we've, we've made some headway on it. I think it's gonna be a constant evolution. I think other people are getting into it, which is awesome. And I think there's a lot of opportunities for people to spread knowledge and maybe, you know, form some groups or, or maybe even some, you know, narrow networks. Andrew Wickline and I have talked a lot about this kind of offline about can you, can you, you know, rather than centers of excellence, why not have surgeons of excellence that can be, you know, geographically spread about, but, but, you know, sort of form a dispersed network of, of people that uh, can do this kind of work. And um, I think there's a lot of opportunity, you know, it's, um, there, there, there's a lot of work to be done in that space and, and it's going to evolve, you know, as the marketplace evolves. But, but I think it's something that people really ought to pay attention to, because I think that, you know, the days of sort of traditional fee for service are just taking what Medicare is going to pay you for a total joint I can tell you right now that if it wasn't for the bundled payment business that we do, the, the reimbursement that we as a small practice get from Medicare joints alone would not keep our practice alive. You know, we we would have to either fold up and become 
hospital employees or look at private equity or do something. So th th this is sort of what keeps us alive. So you, you better believe it gets me out of bed in the morning. Well, we're going to we're going to talk about that. But, you know, so just for again, for the listeners, you know, the bundled payment thing is something that really came around from Medicare. And the concept was, again, to bring all the people in the room that are going to be a part of this and come up with strategies to provide great quality care and then be able to try and reduce cost to the system. And if you do a good enough job and you meet these criteria, the Medicare will give you a bonus basically for, for they'll let you share in the revenue of the savings that you've created. Uh, and then as you were talking about with commercial payers, you know, commercial bundles are now something that like the regular blue crosses of the world are saying, let's identify people that do this well. It makes a lot of sense, right? Not all surgeons are created equal, like George Orwellian, you know, theory of life, right? And and so, you know, why is it that a you know, like a Dr. Andrew Wickline, for example, that does a total knee replacement in 40 minutes that has, you know, this infection rate that has these reported outcomes and this sort of opioid sparing philosophy that can show you on paper, like really how well those patients do. Why wouldn't you want to funnel your patients as a commercial payer to the doctors that can do a rotator cuff repair in an hour versus three hours and have a rotator cuff success rate of, you know, 95% versus 85%. Why are we, we not monitoring all that stuff? And, but what I, I have, a I have a project for you because it sounds like you're doing great work up there. I want you to figure all this stuff out. And then we're going to bring you into Spire for our private equity group, and you're going to share it amongst our network. What do you think? We've thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's two or three years away. All right. We got time. It's all right. But by that point, we'll be on the third inning. And we'll bring you right on it. We'll be happy to have you. Now, look, you know, Bobby, this has been great. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. You know, you're one of my favorites on, on social media and LinkedIn. You have tremendous knowledge across such a wide swath of you know, arthroplasty built in the upper and lower extremities and uh, just love uh, seeing what you do. And really, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. And and obviously, uh, you know, I think as far as social media, you're you're the legend, you know, you're you're the guy that we're all trying to be like. And so you uh, have the opportunity to, to to be a part of your show is a, is a huge honor for me. And I appreciate the opportunity. Well, dude, you are now Ortho Show alum. And you got some swag coming your way. Oh, nice! And we we, we want to see it, man. We want to see it on on your on your uh, internet Absolutely. posting, but we also want to see it at the conference. We want our Ortho Show alumni to be going out there all proud. I was at the Celtics game on TV on on uh, Monday night, so it's too bad we didn't. I would have worn it, you know. My, uh, oh, my, that would have been fit. Yeah, that would have been fantastic, as we like to say. My sister has. Um, my sister's husband used to work at Bain Capital and he's on his own now, but they have literally, you know, front row courtside underneath the away team hoop. Um, and so I was there on Monday night with my sister and my buddy snapped a picture of the TV, you know, and, and it's like when the camera sort of panned over and we're all sitting there going like this and it's, um, yeah, it's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. You should have been out on the court. That was the game we lost. You could have guarded. You should yeah, have been yeah, guarded. Yeah. They I certainly know. couldn't take care of him, right? Oh so. yeah, that that guy. That guy was like a one man show that night. You know, unbelievable. All right, man. It's been a real pleasure having you on. This is Doctor Scott Sigmund. Hashtag follow the fro. Host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.